So on March 2nd, 1962, Wilt Chamberlain did the unthinkable. He scored 100 points in a basketball game, something that had never been accomplished before and still hasn't been replicated today. Now, most people know that Wilt Chamberlain holds that record for 100 points in a game, but not everyone knows a bit of a backstory around that, which is that up until that point, Wilt Chamberlain was pretty much unstoppable as a player. He, he averaged over 55% from the field in his career, but there he had one weakness, and that weakness was he couldn't shoot free throws. He was 51% on his career from the free throw line. But that 61-62 season, when he scored 100 points, he made a change. He made a change in his free throw shooting technique that led to an over 10% increase in his shooting percentage and helped him achieve that mile, uh, milestone of 100 points in a game because he made 28 free throws that game. Now, what was that change? Well, he changed from shooting the traditional free throw to shooting the granny shot, the, the underhand throw that not many players used, except people like Rick Barry. Now, Rick Barry at the time in the NBA was the greatest free throw shooter and actually still holds many free throw shooting records today. Now, when I first heard that story a few years ago, the first question that popped in my mind was, why are we all not shooting underhand free throws? Why did not every player in the NBA adopt this technique? But not only did players not adopt the technique, Wilt Chamberlain, after the 62 season, stopped shooting the underhand free throw. He went back to his old way of shooting, which led to another regression in his free throw shooting percentage and one of the worst free throw shooting seasons of his career at 36%. Now in his autobiography, Chamberlain talks about his decision to revert back to his old shooting technique. And he says, I felt like a sissy, like a sissy shooting underhand. The bottom line was this, Wilt Chamberlain didn't like the way he looked when he shot that free throw and how other people saw him, so he chose not to change. And while some people may say his free throw shooting technique was his greatest weakness, reflecting on it, I think one of his greatest weaknesses was his resistance to change, adopting new ideas. And this isn't just about Wilt Chamberlain though, this is about all of us, and even as in coaching, is we all experience internal resistance not just external, but internal resistance to new ideas and better ways of doing things. And that's what today's episode is all about. Where do we experience that resistance to new ideas, to better ways of doing things, things that have been proven to be more effective? And how can we overcome those things that are creating that internal resistance for us? You're listening to the Coaching Culture Podcast. I'm JP Nurbin alongside my co-host, Nate Sanderson. Every week in around 30 minutes, we're giving you strategies and tools for you to grow as a leader and build your culture. We know the reason why most teams struggle, and that is because they have a dysfunctional culture. This leaves coaches frustrated with entitled players, losing seasons, and toxic environments. And at Thrive on Challenge, we believe the silver bullet is a transformational culture. We help coaches to create and sustain transformational cultures so they can strengthen relationships raise standards, and inspire others to make an impact. To learn more about our workshops, retreats, and mentorship program, go to thriveonchallenge.com. You can also get the Coaching Notes PDFs for every Coaching Culture episode by subscribing to our weekly newsletter. You're listening to episode 130, Overcoming Resistance to New and Better Ways of Doing Things. 
So, JP, one of the things I think is interesting about the story of Will Chamberlain and his free throw style is that oftentimes as coaches, we find ourselves in a similar situation. We're confronted with all these new ideas. We see innovations, whether it's in an approach to culture or in skill development, or as we've talked about the last couple of weeks, how to structure practices and use a more games-based approach. And yet, I know in my own experience, and I'm sure you're the same way, there, there's sort of an internal resistance to trying some of these new ideas. And the, what we're going to talk about this week on the podcast, first of all, are four things that tend to keep us from hearing new ideas and implementing or experimenting with them in the same way that Will Chamberlain seemed unwilling to stay with this new idea that would have benefited his career. Now, the first one we're going to talk about here is just this fear of looking bad. There's a story in the book called A Perfect Pass by S.C. Gwen. He traces the evolution of the passing game in modern college offenses and in the NFL back to its roots. But what's interesting about this story is that even though the passing game has become the most efficient way to move the football at nearly all levels today, for the first hundred years of the game, nobody would throw the ball past the line of scrimmage. And the reason for that was because Walter Camp, the original Yale football coach, said to throw the ball over the line of scrimmage is to sissify the game. And that notion prevented innovation in offensive football for nearly a century because people were afraid to be sissies and attempt to throw the forward pass. Now, interestingly enough, the story talks about how Mummy and Mike Leach as being two of the great innovators of the passing game, but both had the opportunity to experiment with these new ideas, these new approaches to offense in places where they didn't feel the pressure to conform to a certain style of football. And part of the reason for that was because they started in some of the worst high school and college jobs in America where failure was already a given. No one seemed to care about the football programs in Mount Pleasant, Iowa, or in rural West Texas, where these guys began experimenting with this, these ideas. And so these innovations were allowed to flourish and to work, to be given an opportunity to work, because they didn't have that perception or the fear of what people would say about the way that they were trying to run their football program. Well, what's kind of interesting about that story is uh, that word sissy. I mean, I guess Wilt Chamberlain used the exact same word, so it wasn't just Chamberlain, but football coaches that were afraid of being seen as a sissy by adopting the forward pass. And this this first resistance, this afraid, this fear of of what other people think, you know, it's something that we really have to get over. And there's a great quote by Rick Barry, um, who we talked about in the, the intro there, as far as he had adopted this underhand granny style free throw, and he says. It's almost incomprehensible to me that someone could have that attitude to sacrifice their success over worrying about how somebody else feels about you or says about you. It's really sad. Now, when I heard that, I 100% agreed with Rick Barry, but I think there's also another element to this fear of other people's perception. I mean, we, we may not care about what the fans think, but I think we do care about what our players think. You know, that idea of how they're going to perceive certain changes, will they buy into them? Those are real fears. And, and, and then honestly, they matter, right? Because we have to create buy-in from them. The second big resistance that we have 
to adopting new ideas is this honestly this fear of losing our job i was speaking with a consultant in the basketball world and he had done some consulting for an mba team and gone in there and done a couple presentations on some i think some new offensive or defensive systems that they should consider adopting and the head coach came up to him after the presentation and he says i'm 100 percent in agreement with what you just said there but if I implement this and it doesn't work right away, my front office will fire me immediately. And whether we're a professional coach or college coach or even a high school coach, the fear of losing our job is real. It's real for all of us uh, that we have to face that. So that's something that I think creates an additional resistance for us. Well, Gwen, in his book talking about the the evolution of the past, references a story of the 1965 San Diego Chargers, who were one of the early teams to try to start throwing the ball around the yard a little bit more. And at the end of that 1965 season, Sid Gilman, who was regarded as one of the better NFL quarterbacks at the time, threw 23 touchdown passes, but had 26 interceptions, which everybody, again, on the outside said, this is why we don't throw the football, because we lose possession. And Gwen says in the book that this just confirmed this fact, that coaches who wanted to keep their jobs ran the football, right? Rather than continuing to try to innovate and try to find a better way or improve their offensive attack, the fear of something not working would lead to them losing their job, just as you said. In the MVP machine, another great book about innovation in baseball, there's a story there about coaches, pitching coaches working with number one draft choices and the peril of working with a first round pick who's a starting pitcher because there's this fear that if I try to teach them something new that they haven't used already to get to this point and it doesn't work or it changes something in in, in their effectiveness that you'll lose your job as a pitching coach for screwing up that prospect. And so he talks about how some of the most undercoached players in Major League Baseball are the most talented, highly drafted players because coaches are afraid to try to get them to do something different because they will lose their jobs. So when I look back on my own kind of journey as a coach and my own evolution, I'm, I'm really grateful because um, I, I see some of the pressures that we experience as coaches today around losing our job. And, and my first five years of coaching was in Ireland. There's two really incredible things about my situation there beyond the fact that I got to coach like multiple teams at the same time. And, and one is I was a head coach. So I never had to, if I picked up a really great idea or if I read about something, like I just went out and tried it. Like I didn't have to go and get somebody's approval or anything like that. So that was really, really influential uh, for me and impactful in my growth. But the second big thing was I never really had to live with that fear of losing my job. That wasn't something at the forefront of my mind, which I know is a reality for so many coaches. And, and because I didn't, have that at the forefront of my mind really what was at the front of my mind was this idea of what can we do to to make things better for us like what can we do to grow just constantly looking for how we can do things better in every aspect of our program and and that really i think helped me to implement changes that i think might have been in a different circumstances i know i would experience much more internal resistance to adopting some new ideas now, I think the third big fear that coaches experience when adopting new ideas is this fear that it's not going to work or not work quickly when what we're doing already is working well enough. I'm reminded of a story that our guest last week on the podcast, Sean Mizga, told us off air 
about a time where an NFL team brought him in to do some consulting, just to observe some of their training camp practices and give them some feedback. And of course, Sean is kind of on the cutting edge of this innovative way to train players in football. And so he goes down and he watches a couple practices and the coaches bring him into a room afterwards to, to get his feedback. And they say, well, what'd you think? And Sean says, well, I, I watched your defensive backs work for two hours in isolation with their position group. And I watched your wide receivers on the other side of the field work for two hours in isolation with their position group. And never once did the defensive backs try to defend a wide receiver in live play. Have you ever thought about having them go against each other? And one of the coaches just sort of leaned back and scowled at him and reached into his pocket. And he pulled out a Super Bowl ring from 1986. And he said, do you have one of these? And Sean said, no, I don't. And he said, well, that's how we got one. And so just this idea that, you know, we have practices that may have been successful in the past, but does that mean that they're the best way to to train or to build your culture or to build relationships? Quite honestly, the answer is probably no. There's probably always a better way. But sometimes that fear of what if it doesn't work keeps us from trying something different. Yeah, and I think that really connects with the fourth kind of internal resistance that we experience to new ideas and change. And that is because we really get defensive about it. And I think about that coach. Yeah, it worked well enough for him when he won that Super Bowl. But also in that meeting, he probably felt that it was a critique of him as a coach, right? Like so much of what we do as coaches and the way we build our culture, the way we run our practices, we're intentional. We work really hard on that. So when we get feedback or new ideas that are potentially offering better ways of doing things, we often feel that people or these ideas are saying, hey, you're a bad coach, right? And that's really not what it's about. It's, you know, we have to move beyond that, but we take things personally because we wrap so much of the way that we maybe coach or run our program with our identity. Gosh, I, I remember a time in my fourth year of coaching where because of a unique situation of, of one of my players who was in foster care, a social worker would travel with him to all our games. And I remember sitting down having lunch in between one, one uh, between games on a tournament that we had. Uh, the social worker came and sat down and we were kind of eating lunch, just chatting. And eventually she opened up and gave me some feedback around my coaching, which I hadn't really asked for at the time. But she let me know that from her perspective, that the way that I was coaching this young man, this individual, with my yelling and screaming, my intensity and my passion all over on the sidelines, that it wasn't the most effective way of coaching him. In fact, she kind of disagreed with how I coached all the kids uh, in, in that way. And I remember instantly getting really, really defensive. And I ignored the experience that she had around working with, 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 with children and with, with young people and with adolescents. I didn't want to even listen to that because all I heard was criticism of me, not my coaching practices. I heard of her criticizing um, me as a person. And I'm sitting there going, who the heck does she think she is? She doesn't know anything about the game of basketball. She doesn't know anything about sports. I played basketball all my life. I've been coaching the last four years. I work really, really hard as a coach. I'm really, really intentional. You know, I study the game. And so any criticism, especially from an outsider, that I saw as criticism of me, not just of my coaching. Well, JP, I think that reaction is probably common to just about everybody who's 
ideas about how to do a certain thing may be challenged. Again, in the MVP machine, there's a story about um, the pitching coach from the Boston Red Sox who was trying to get players to experiment with some different grips and some different training methods. And he mentions how the reactions that he typically got were one of three things. And we've already talked about these a little bit. Either guys get defensive. Some of them are afraid to change because, again, what they've done has got them to the major leagues. Some of them uh, are offended because this is the way pitching is supposed to be done and they don't want to have anything to do with it. And he says, to your point, it's very rare to get a casual, normal reaction where they process what you're telling them. They don't have an emotional reaction. They see the upside of it and they're willing just to try it out. And I think that's the place that we want to get as coaches. We're not advocating here that Every year you reinvent the wheel, you put in a new offense, you change your culture, you do your captain's council differently. I think it's just the idea that we can get to a safe and comfortable place where we can entertain new ideas and new perspectives to allow your program and your coaching practices to continue to grow. Now, as we're wrapping up here, Nate, I know we want to give coaches a few suggestions or strategies to help them to kind of overcome some of these internal resistance, these fears uh, of adopting new ideas. And there's there's a line from James Clear, my, my interview with James Clear uh, a year ago on the podcast that has stuck with me for a long time. And he asked the question, is the first way I learned to coach the best way? Is the first way I learned to coach the best way? And then the truth is, the answer to that question nearly every time is is no, right? There's always a better way of doing things. And we've got to be constantly exposing ourselves to new ideas, but not just exposing ourselves to new ideas, um, which there's so many ways we can do that in today's day and age, not just through social media um, and through YouTube and online stuff, but even just going and watching other people's practices. You know, there's so many other sports out there are so innovative. But when we engage in those ideas or we expose ourselves, we really need to engage that with them in a way that we are seeking first to understand than to be understood. That's the old Stephen Covey um, quote. Seek first to understand rather than to be understood. And are we coming in there? Are we engaging with coaches? Are we engaging in conversation? Are we watching practices? Are we attending clinics just to validate what we currently believe is our way of doing things? Or are we actually looking for new and better ways of doing things? Now, the second piece of this, those obstacles that we face, the, the fear of implementing new ideas. When we have that curiosity, when we come across something that we think, boy, that could work in our practices, that could work with our team, that could work in our program, but it's different, different than what we've done before. That fear of looking silly or other people being critical or if it doesn't work as well as what you've done before, potentially even losing your job, all those fears are real. And yet, I think the antidote to that feeling is two things, JP. One is, I think you have to create some space for experimentation. Like The only way that you're going to feel good about trying new things is if you see something new work. And the only way you get a chance to see it work is if you try it somewhere. Now, we've often used the summer and our summer workouts and our summer games as a chance to, to try a new set, to do something different offensively, to try some new games in practice. And if they don't work, then we look at them, we learn from them, we try something different next time. But a lot of our best ideas have come from a willingness to give them a try in the summer 
and then implement them fully when we get to the season. And the second thing I would advocate for coaches to do when you're carrying these new ideas and you're thinking about how to implement them with your team is to really try to engage your players and engage your coaching staff with those ideas to create a dialogue so that they can understand, hey, I came across this and I'm, I'm really fascinated by it and start that conversation. What do you think that would look like for us? Do you think we could do that in our practice? Would that be something that would benefit our team? How should we do that if we felt like it was gonna be beneficial? And I think those conversations build collaboration. I think they make those ideas better, right? They push your thinking a little bit farther and it makes it a little bit less scary to be able to implement them when you brought your team along in terms of how that process may go forward. Yeah. and I think. Another question I would even add to that as you're presenting an idea that you might like to implement with your team is the question, why would this not work? And really being able to allow them to articulate maybe some of their concerns early on and get that out there in the open, I think that's really helpful. And I think is, and this is kind of down another path that we can go in a little later date in another episode, Nate, but is really sometimes this process of implementing new ideas, it's not gonna be all in from day one, that sometimes it's they're understanding that there's gonna be baby steps along the way. And I think that like what you're suggesting there is the conversation discussion piece is really gauging and so you have a, an understanding of where people are at and how to move those ideas along. Now coaches, I wanna extend a challenge for every one of you here. My question is, what episode of the Coaching Culture Podcast has impacted your coaching the most? I'd like for you to, to select that episode in your podcast app, share it to social media, use hashtag Coaching Culture, and if it's on Twitter, tag myself at JP Nurbin and at Coach N Sanderson in that post. But share that to social media and explain what new idea you have since adapted and how it's benefited you and your program. Sharing new ideas is what we're all about on this podcast. And we really want to encourage you to help us in that effort. So favorite episode that's impacted you the most and you're coaching the most, select it, share it to social media, use hashtag coaching culture. If it's on Twitter, tag myself and Nate um, and explain what that idea was and how it's impacted you and your program.